Bohdana Niborak is editor-in-chief at The Ukrainians. She is host of an award-winning video project about decolonization as well. Bohdana is uh, ex-head of the translation department at the Ukrainian Book Institute and has a seven-year career in journalism writing about culture and the creative industries. Welcome to the Silicon Curtain podcast. Please like, subscribe, and of course, share links to the channel to help more people discover the fantastic content and speakers that we feature. Welcome to the channel. I'm really, really delighted to uh, be able to speak to you. Thank you for having me here, Jonathan. Well, it's a, it's a huge pleasure. And you're based in Kiev, but just before we were recording, uh, you were you were telling me that uh, Lviv is is where you were originally from, and of course, um, I ran the event there in Lviv. Um, Lviv is the center of culture, and what is your, in your view, what is the importance of Lviv, and how have attitudes around Ukraine changed? let's say from, you know, through the Soviet period, through the 90s, and now in time of war, it seems Lviv has become more and more important through that period. Uh, what a huge question. Um, I need to say that um, uh, what we all got during this war is uh, that we all felt uh, here in Ukraine, but also outside of the country, how big our country is. And it definitely means also that it is very multicultural, that it needs to be inclusive and that it has very different heritage uh, inside of the country. Uh, when we speak about Lviv, uh, Lviv also played and still plays a very specific role uh, in Ukraine. And uh, I want to be very delicate because we can speak like that uh, about any city. Uh, but definitely I have this very private connection uh, towards my uh, native city. And uh, it always was an important uh, place. Uh, for example, when we speak about the end of 19th century and the beginning of 20th century, it was the only place in Ukraine. Lviv was under Austro-Hungaria, but uh, uh, there were uh, many people who were active in politics, so it was the only place where Ukrainian language books uh, could be published. So people from Kyiv, from Kharkiv, from another regions of Ukraine, which was a part of Imperial Russia, uh, were able to go to Lviv and to publish, for example, um, uh, new books uh, about uh, uh, feminism, which was a point uh, in that time in Ukraine, and we had very powerful intellectual voices. Uh, we may find examples from different epochs. Um, of course, it is quite easy for me to recall something from my own life. Uh, and um, I always remember Lviv as a very active uh, uh, cultural point uh, where very different people were able to make new art, contemporary art. Uh, for example, uh, when you were in Lviv, probably somebody told you about Ziga. Ziga is a very important art center, which was founded after our first revolution, revolution uh, of students in 1990. Uh, and uh, it was and is an important art center. They do festivals, uh, people of culture gather there, uh, they spend time, they uh, have new ideas flourishing uh, around this place. But I think also that what is important in Lviv is uh, that it still tries to stay uh, active and to change because right now the city is one of the main hubs uh, for so many internally displaced people and they of course need to find their places and uh, of course they need also to find their place uh, in the context of culture. I mean uh, to interact with theaters, with uh, galleries, with different institutions of art and it also influences the city because the visitor, the spectator, uh, the viewer changes uh, just because uh, he or she becomes much more diverse. And uh, I'm really fond of uh, looking how this city changes right now because I think that 
the experiences there just become more diverse and it is also good uh, for art sphere but also uh, it gives much broader um, space for the dialogue all right can get the mute button undone there um and in terms of publishing Lviv is still an incredibly important center of the uh publishing industry um there's the Lviv uh, book fair uh i had the huge pleasure to meet uh, sofia chiliak uh when i was uh, in 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 the town and uh she was uh, kind enough to be one of the panelists on the event that we ran um it's growing in importance as well, isn't it? As Russians have made their language toxic um, and painful to many Ukrainians to hear and speak it, which is absolutely understandable, there has also been a, um, a rise and an uptake uh, in Ukrainian language uh, books and, and publishing. Uh, how, how important uh, do you think that is for future Ukrainian identity, but also perhaps uh, resilience as well of Ukrainian culture. Uh, I'm very glad that you were able to attend the book forum. It is uh, the festival where I feel I grew up with because uh, it is even older than me. Uh, I think that festivals uh, as such are very important because it is a place where people meet, where they spend uh, quality time together, where they have different conversations and where they can enjoy art. Uh, so, of course, uh, the book forum is one of the most important in Ukraine, but um, it is very interesting how the things changed uh, after the revolution of dignity after 2014, because uh, then uh, the reform of decentralization uh, began in Ukraine. And that means uh, that um, uh, local networks and small local initiatives gained uh, much power. Also, they gained more access to, for example, different funds. And uh, small festivals across Ukraine started to flourish. We also need to remember the Book Arsenal, which is a big uh, literary event in Kyiv. It is also very important. But there were really very different events across the country. And it is just about uh, the access to culture. Uh, you understand that you may uh, see uh, an alive writer and it sounds um, very stupid in a way. It sounds as a cliche, but it is very important to uh, listen to a contemporary who writes about uh, your country and realities in the world in your language. And I think that it really influenced it a lot uh, after the uh, Revolution of Dignity. Uh, but when we speak about these um, places uh, of uh, publishing, I always want to emphasize uh, the importance of Kharkiv. Uh, Kharkiv still is heavily uh, shelled uh, and Kharkiv uh, still publishes a lot of literature because a lot of uh, uh, main uh, publishers, but also uh, the main places just to print, I mean print houses or, uh, for different publishings across Ukraine, they're located in Kharkiv. It is also very symbolic because uh, in 19th century Kharkiv was the main place where uh, Ukraine as idea was flourishing. Uh, there was a university, uh, there was a circle of Kharkiv romantics, as they called themselves, and uh, they did a lot. Uh, and Kharkiv still uh, is a um, kind of platform for this uh, Ukrainian idea as such. Uh, yeah, uh, but uh, um, it is also about uh, how huge uh, Ukraine is, uh, because uh, as I told before, uh, when uh, some of the publishers understood that they are not able to print books in Kharkiv because some of the print houses were heavily damaged, mm -hmm. uh, they were able to switch somehow and to print, for example, in Lviv region, in Ivano-Frankivsk region, in Kyiv region, and so on. And it is very important when you are able to choose and when you have space uh, where you can move. That's what we felt even in this literary industry. I'll ask you in a minute about your publication, because I think it's fascinating to learn how that came about. But before we get there, um, when we're talking about the creation of culture, Obviously, 
in this period, not just the full-scale war, but since 2014, Russia has been systematically targeting and destroying Ukrainian culture. Um, where it's distinctly Ukrainian, their tactic seems to be to annihilate it. Where that culture is more um, international or where it is a hybrid of uh, you know, um, Russified culture with Ukrainian culture combined, or whether it's historical dating back to the Soviet or prior periods, they tend to be looting it, stealing it, taking it back. We know that they tried very hard to steal uh, Scythian gold and you know uh, deep archaeological uh, objects. Um, as this has been unfolding, how's your publication been sort of covering this issue, and and what is your view on this you know extraordinary uh, behaviour, which has a direct comparison to how the Nazis looted Europe during the Second World War. Uh, and the Ukrainians, we write a lot about cultural figures and about culture as such. We make interviews, we do reporting, we do podcasts and so on. Uh, and I need to say that uh, probably one of our main goals uh, since the beginning of full war was to keep focus on Ukrainian culture and to focus on Ukrainian culture in the context of the world culture. Uh, because uh, when we come into post-colonial discourse, it is uh, very easy just to keep this connection, Russia and Ukraine. Of course, we have Ukraine and Ukrainian culture as a victim, and we have Russia as an aggressor. It is obvious. We don't need to have conversations around this. But when we speak about another steps, uh, I think that it is uh, very important, uh, especially right now, uh, to understand uh, uh, the narratives and uh, the special features of Ukrainian culture, uh, to feel it in the context, uh, first of all, of European culture, because it is a part of it. Uh, our creatives, they were educated here and in Europe, but here our universities in Kyiv and in Lviv, they operated like European ones. They translated from European languages. Uh, they had very different connections. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of these stories were blinded or forgotten uh, in different ways, uh, mainly during the Soviet times. But also, they were forgotten because it is very difficult to interact with the culture of a country which uh, doesn't have a national state. And Ukraine was, uh, from the point of view of uh, so many uh, countries of the world, uh, a nation which doesn't have a state. And we all uh, remember this um, famous essay by Milan Kundera, where he writes about this uh, big nation of uh, 40 million Ukrainians uh, who are vanished by the Russians. And he thinks that, uh, unfortunately, Ukrainians don't have a future. It is uh, written in the 80s of last century, but we understand how pessimistic everybody was about Ukraine. And I think that uh, we just need to dive into these Ukrainian narratives. And it is quite difficult because there are several... Uh, problems and the first problem probably is the lack of translations. We have uh, a plenty, but it is also a tradition, a tradition of translation from the language, a tradition of communication about uh, uh, important figures of one's culture. Also, there is, of course, issue of Russian propaganda, like for so many years, so many great museums across the world were praising great Russian avant-garde. And right now, people are discovering that this avant-garde is probably great, but uh, not that Russian. And it is uh, a problem for so many professionals across the world because they were educated at their universities that, for example, uh, Malevich or Alexandra Exter or uh, Archipenko or so many famous artists that they are great Russians. And right now you need to ask yourself, why have you discovered this only now? And I don't want to condemn anybody, but it is about the switch of understanding of uh, things and of approaches which were very uh, close to you. 
so uh, this is the way I try to speak about culture uh, because uh, what I am really afraid is to lose this possibility. Uh, for example, to dive into the stories of uh, Lesia Ukrainka, who is uh, right now quite well translated. Uh, she's becoming well translated, first of all, into English. And uh, she has really unique approaches into her playwrights. Uh, but uh, uh, also, when we speak about her, we may speak about how she wasn't able to publish in Ukraine. Ukrainian in Kyiv and it will be not the conversation about her art but this will be the conversation about what uh, Russian Empire did to Ukrainian culture. These both conversations are very very important but what I really want is to make these voices of Ukrainians uh, much vocal and I think that it is really a big issue for all us here right now. And there's a horrible irony, isn't there, that for many years, and including during the um, 2014 to 2022 period, there was not a huge focus on Ukraine, despite what's going on. Russian propaganda was able, with some success, to paint it as a internal struggle, civil war, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They were able to carry on uh, trying to diminish Ukraine, and part of that was by elevating Russian culture. And uh, despite their invasion of Ukraine, um, there was very little sanction or discussion of uh, Russian imperial culture and, and how it was perceived around the world. Um, in, uh, in 2021, I was in Paris and I didn't get to see it. He's one of my favorite artists, um, but it was um, Ilya Repin. Uh, and of course, that exhibition was uh, labeled, uh, you know, an exhibition of Russian art, uh, irrespective of the fact that one of the greatest Russian artists uh, turns out to have been born in Ukraine and extremely influenced by Ukrainian identity and, and themes. So this is a process that's only just really starting uh, in, in, I would say, the West, is this um, understanding of the decolonization uh, of, uh, of uh, Russian art. Um, the horrible irony, though, isn't it, is it that it took a full-scale invasion. The other irony with uh, translation is that authors such as Victoria Amelina are only now getting um, the judgment and translations they deserve um, precisely because uh, they're either under threat or, tragically, in the case of, of Amelina, uh, were actually killed by a Russian missile. Um, so could you describe this sort of process? On the one hand, the positivity that Ukrainian culture is getting uh, more attention, but also the tragedy that that's because it's under the threat of extermination. Uh, I think that it is a tragedy and it must be called uh, in this way. Uh, because, uh, for example, Victoria Amelina, uh, with, uh, uh, with the name of Amelina, we will start a new project together with Pan Ukraine about people uh, who um, died uh, because of Russian aggression and who were killed by Russians. Um, uh, she wanted uh, to spread uh, the truth uh, from Ukraine and she was brave enough to go to a war zone together with um, international uh, authors and journalists uh, to show them uh, to show them uh, the essence of the Russian world. I think that um, we need to speak about it in uh, the context of colonialism, really, because it just gives us very accessible theoretical approach, which we already have in English uh, well-developed. And I'm just thinking about one of the... Uh, most famous uh, Ukrainian novels, which is uh, one of the best translated novels worldwide. I will show you the first edition in Ukrainian. It is a book by uh, Oksana Zabushko, and it is called uh, The Fieldwork uh, in Ukrainian Sex. In general, it is uh, a short novel about a woman who comes uh, to North America to a conference 
uh, and she tries to explain herself and her country. It is imaginable conference and uh, she like sits in front of the mirror and talks to herself. And uh, Oksana Zabushko writes how uh, she was frequently asked about uh, her country and always she was asked like it is somewhere close to Russia. Uh, and uh, she tries to depict us uh, the image of intellectual from such a country and how he or she could feel. Because when we speak about this country somewhere close to Russia, we mean a big 40 million country with very deep roots, with deep heritage, with uh, interesting culture, uh, a country of uh, a very big quantity of people with very different traditions and very specific culture. Uh, and I think that we again come back to this question uh, when somebody or who thought that uh, it is a country close to Russia and similar to Russia uh, understands that it is a country with uh, um, a language, with a culture, with uh, intellectual tradition. Uh, he or she must admit uh, that there was a, a tragic mistake. Uh, but uh, the biggest tragedy is that uh, here Ukrainians, uh, they pay for this mistake and they pay with their lives, they pay with their destinies. Uh, because I follow so many creatives who, for example, uh, joined the military and they protect their right to be Ukrainian directors or to be Ukrainian writers with arms. Also, I follow so many writers who just uh, changed their writing and there are many powerful voices who are working on different on novels, on scripts and so on, but after uh, the full war, uh, they changed uh, um, their work because they understand that they need to document or they need to testify and write essays for foreign media. So it is the um, way in which uh, we pay because um, people here who work in journalism or who write, they also understand that we had this, um, how people like to say, window of possibilities and we need to use it just to tell uh, a pinch of truth, because probably this pinch will help in some way in two years, in three years. And it is also a big change in the work of people here, uh, but I'm not trying to say it uh, in lower tone, because it is also their decision, uh, because they feel that in this way, they work uh, for the, uh, victory of uh, their country, but also they work uh, for this decolonial struggle to, to feel free and to help uh, people around them really feel free. Well, let's turn to uh, your publication, The Ukrainians. Um, I've, with the help of Google Translate, been able to have a good look at the extra extraordinary range of articles there. Could you tell me a little bit about how the publication came about, its evolution, but also how its focus has changed uh, during the full-scale war. Uh, I work full-time with the Ukrainians media for more than two years, and I'm uh, a chief editor uh, of the website. I work with interviews mainly uh, and with feature articles. Uh, the Ukrainians media started uh, uh, after the Revolution of Dignity and it started uh, uh, from uh, the very idealistic idea of three students who wanted to make uh, long reads with interesting Ukrainians who were able to share their experience and to comment on uh, the uh, situation around and so on. Uh, it changed a lot uh, since then, because right now we have the Reporters uh, magazine. We print it and we do literary reporting. It is long-form features. Uh, we also have a podcast studio where we do a lot of podcasts. Some of them are in English even. Um, and our main focus, of course, is also interviews and 
long and deep conversations with uh, people that we want to highlight. Um, I can say that our work really changed because uh, we kept the same focus which was before. It is good journalism in Ukrainian and it is also long-form journalism. Uh, we have news and uh, when the full war started, definitely we focused much on the news desk. Uh, but I think that maybe one or two months after we were in, of course, not regular mode of work, but we uh, got back to all the formats that we were approaching. And for example, together with my colleague and friend, we launched this podcast about um, decolonization and imperialism and Ukrainian culture uh, in the very beginning of April. Uh, so I think it was uh, uh, rather soon. And um, uh, looking at the site, I mean, there's a fascinating phrase. Obviously, uh, there are different funding models for magazines like yours, but you've got the incredible phrase here, which I think is fantastic. Onas. Uh, which in, in, in English there is that you do not have any investors, you do not have any friendly politicians or corrupt patrons. That's an extraordinary statement, but there's quite a lot behind that, isn't there? And you could trace the history of Ukrainian media from a oligarch-dominated um, media sphere to the sort of robust and evolving media environment uh, that exists today. So how important is it for you and your colleagues uh, to make a statement like that and to not have uh, these kind of influences on your editorial choices? Yeah, it is about our funding. Uh, and uh, I think that it is an issue across the world. Like we have people who want to influence media uh, everywhere in every country and in every democracy, unfortunately. Uh, when we were working on our founding model, we were thinking that we want to work on a um, membership program. Uh, because uh, the only connection uh, we want to really feel is the connection to our readers. Uh, I also run a book club uh, for our members uh, at the Ukrainians, and we have more than 800 people who are interacting in different ways with our book club. Uh, we have live events with uh, interesting intellectuals in Kyiv uh, monthly, and we also make an online version for all those people who are across the country, but also abroad. And um, I told this because it is my possibility to uh, see those people who support us, to listen to their questions, to understand um, which literature do they like and what do they want to get from the media. Uh, so it is very, very important for us to work on this um, possibility of uh, funding. And uh, I uh, encourage all our viewers, listeners to um, check our Patreon and to consider supporting us because uh, only with the support of our patrons, we are able to make new products and to go on. And... Let's tackle a theme that has been elevated, I think, recently uh, in the Western media. And this is for a variety of reasons. This is the so-called war fatigue. And I've been speaking to a number of people, especially those who are in Ukraine itself, who are either fighting on the front line or engaged in journalism, civic activity, uh, volunteer groups. It seems to me that there is a big difference between the narratives that are prominent in the Western media and actual attitudes in Ukraine itself. This idea of war fatigue seems to be a manufactured concept, partly through media, dare I say, sort of laziness uh, and, and perhaps being ill-informed, but also there seems to be a real attempt by Russian disinformation, by useful idiots and assets in the West to create and amplify this idea of stalemate, war fatigue, et cetera, et cetera. Could you comment on that from a Ukrainian perspective? Um, people must be tired, of course. People must be uh, 
you know, emotionally, it's incredibly tough to be under missile fire continuously now for almost two years. But do you think this idea of war fatigue is 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 far too simplistic and does not adequately describe the sort of resilience and energy that Ukrainians seem to be showing still uh, in in defending their freedoms, country and identity? Uh, very important question. And um, um, recently I had an interview with Peter Pomerantsev for the Ukrainians, and he told that it is very important to divide tiredness and fatigue. Because when person is tired, you may get good sleep, uh, good food, and then you go on. But when uh, you have this fatigue, uh, you don't understand uh, how to move. And um, uh, why do you support, for example? Uh, so, of course, of course, fatigue is, uh, um, is very important point to discuss. Uh, I also need to say that here in Ukraine, people don't have a right to fatigue. Of course, people are very tired on different levels, and that's what I see um, um, beneath my colleagues, for example. Of course, we are tired. Of course, people uh, want to feel safety and so on. But also they understand that they won't get this safety unless Russia is defeated in some way and uh, they come back to their peaceful lives. Uh, but when we speak about uh, uh, foreigners, I also think that there is a very important issue to discuss. It is um, uh, how, uh, how war and uh, content from war uh, becomes the attraction. If you just uh, view it from uh, a paper or from your laptop screen, uh, unfortunately, there was a lot of uh, um, very difficult content from Ukraine and uh, uh, people were shocked. They were shocked that it is possible and how it was frequently written that it is possible in 21st century, that it is possible on European continent, that it is possible even after never again motto and so on. Uh, but then this shock uh, becomes lighter and another problem arises. And this problem is, uh, have you done enough uh, to, uh, to stop this? If you consider something an atrocity, a war crime, a crime against humanity or a genocide, um, and if you feel that you're adult person, uh, probably you need to uh, interact in some way and then everybody asks uh, um, uh, it it is very private question yes uh, and it is important it is it is not uh, easy to answer it uh, so I think that uh, people, uh, some people, or even many people, they also lose attention uh, because they might also feel that they haven't done enough. Or they want to say that they already have done enough and it didn't help. So now we can do nothing. But uh, it all um, doesn't matter because uh, uh, war in Ukraine goes on and there are so many occupied territories. Mm -hmm. And we all remember um, uh, how the war crimes uh, look uh, when uh, some territories are liberated and when we start uh, um, documenting war crimes. Unfortunately, it happens right now. When we speak, it happens. And when any of our viewers uh, listens to us, war crimes of Russians also happen. And that means that uh, we need to protest and we need to help Ukraine stop this because it will go on. And of course, the famous phrase um, came about early in the war that... Um, you know, if if uh, Ukrainians stop fighting, there will be no more Ukraine. If Russians stop fighting, well, you know, Russia will still continue to exist. Do people still have that strong sense that they are fighting against someone who wants to eliminate their identity language? And if you are a cultural figure like yourself and your colleagues, there is a mortal threat 
if you were to be under occupation, uh, potentially you and your colleagues would all be the targets for uh, Russian um, sort of genocidal aggression. Yeah, I think that you really uh, gave a very good context of uh, uh, what uh, we have uh, in Ukraine right now, because uh, people understand uh, that uh, the aim stays uh, the same. Uh, we also follow, I think that we all follow um, uh, how the Russians are commenting on why they are um, having this war, like war special military operation against Nazis, against LGBT people, against Europe, against NATO. They are switching in their testimonies. Uh, but what we definitely know is that it is war um, against Ukraine as such. And uh, that if we want to live, it is the question of existence. We need to support our military. We need to advocate Ukraine and we need to in Ukraine and tell the stories of Ukraine because the main story from Ukraine right now is definitely the story about war and about war context but Ukraine is much more than war Ukraine has uh, many stories to be told and um, uh, when we come to um, uh, when we come to victims victims are also much bigger than just court cases. They have lives, they have private lives, they have interests, they have people whom they love, they have native cities, they have favorite books and so on. And it is very, very important now to dive into these stories because it also gives us very personal perspective. And I really believe that probably it might work with this idea of fatigue because that's what we are also trying to do um, in uh, our uh, magazine we try to tell people stories and of course we speak about big narratives and about big contexts but a human being is in the center of everything and uh, we are uh, so many times recalling with you this um, history of 20th century and right now I'm just thinking about Hersch Lauterpacht, who was one of the main lawyers of the last century. And by the way, he was educated at Lviv University at the same faculty where I was also educated. Uh, he told that the sole human being is uh, the main entity of the law. So we always need to keep our attention to human stories. That's incredibly powerful. And that raises a question. Um, and I think you know, partly this was addressed in, in one of your recent articles. Uh, let's fast forward to Ukrainian victory. Let's assume, as we hope, that victory is maximalist and Ukraine regains its territory. In the areas that have been scarred by war, and most areas have, but especially those that have been under, under occupation, there are going to be terrible stories and, and terrible discoveries. How do you think in future Ukraine will honor the memories of the victims? Um, how will monuments be constructed? Uh, and I, I very much compare this to my experiences of going through uh, Russia, because there in the Soviet period, and I think even now, people only remember uh, traumatic episodes in history because the state has told them to do so. If there is a physical monument there, they remember that, but they remember it in a way that has been crafted by the state, and they remember it through narratives that the state has used to manipulate them. Um, how is Ukraine going to get away from that into a more organic, personal, and humane way of memorializing the victims? And of course, Russian crimes are so widespread, there is a risk of, of, of having a, a vast trauma scape of uh, monuments to suffering, whereas Ukraine is also a very forward-looking country, a future-looking, and I dare say optimistic people. How How is it? It's going to be difficult, isn't it, to balance that historical memory uh, with, with, uh, with looking forward as well? 
I think that it is a really um, a big thing. Uh, and fortunately, uh, we have historians who work with uh, the history of public memory in Ukraine during the Soviet times. For example, one of uh, probably the most powerful is Serhii Yakalchuk, uh, who works in Canada, and he has several books in English about public memory during Stalin times, but also further. And he writes a lot about commemoration and about uh, good and how to say bad examples of public memory. Uh, probably it is not about good or bad, but um, uh, better to say uh, how it influences the society and how it influences the way the society remembers. And um, I, uh, I have asked him about the commemoration and he told that uh, he really likes uh, that memorials uh, that um, uh, in some way uh, have the names of, for example, fallen soldiers that also put this attention um, on each human being uh, because um, the human life is something that uh, can't be changed for for anything, and we uh, we cannot give anything valuable enough to families who have lost their uh, clothes. Uh, so I think that commemoration is uh, is very important, but I also feel that we have professionals who might work with this. Uh, but of course, it is very important, first of all, to um, uh, to put an end to Russian occupation, but also uh, to work in a broad sense with the idea of justice to be served, uh, because uh, it is about courts, but it is also uh, how you said about public commemoration, it is about a possibility to reflect. And what I personally discovered uh, in this uh, time is that uh, um, memory is painful. Uh, you need to remember, you need to invest in remembrance, but it is very difficult and very painful. Uh, in last century, we all were mainly thinking that that it is difficult to remember because, for example, there is censorship or there is uh, official public memory which is put down from Moscow and you just need to follow it. But uh, right now, I also feel that uh, we need to work with this uh, difficulty uh, of remembrance and the right of private person to try to forget. But I also think that there are enough responsible people who want to not only to testify, but to try to, uh, to reflect and to comment. And I think that Ukrainian culture will, um, will deal with this. Mm. But first of all, we need to win this war. And of course, it's important that these memorialization and monuments don't just come from the state, uh, from the government, even from local authorities, that actually it also involves people and that in some of these initiatives ought to be coming from the ground up. Um, I think one of the most shocking experiences I had in Russia was the not just the realization of the lack of empathy and humanity, but this extraordinary process that unless the government had labeled something and told people how they ought to think about it, it's as if that thing didn't exist. This is a very, uh, let's say, Pomerantzian kind of idea or or even David Satter writes about this, you know, uh, it didn't happen, you know, um, it, it was a long time ago and it didn't happen anyway. That, that That's the kind of concept. I was on a train going uh, and and it was uh, it was it was during a sort of wintry period, so there was snow cover, and uh, I went on a train towards Verkhotá, and of course, if you head up into that part of Russia, you're starting to go through uh, the areas where the Gulag system was very extensive, and uh, in the tundra, we went past a huge uh, wooden prison camp uh, that must have dated for the 1930s probably abandoned in the 1950s, um, not preserved in any way, not labeled as a historical monument. It's not a museum, nothing, just a vast prison camp with the crumbling watchtowers and walls and barbed wire in the middle of the tundra. And I asked people in the carriage, well, what on earth is that? You know, it was incredibly 
visually striking and terrifying. And um, because it doesn't have an official designation, literally everybody to a person said it's nothing, as if it doesn't really exist, as if no one really suffered there. It's it's nothing. It's not important. Uh, and I uh, that that struck me as as uh, in, it, horrific on so many different uh, and different levels. That's the danger, isn't it? That if you leave this moralization to governments, um, uh, it, 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 the, it, the pain, the trauma is not processed in a humane way. So do you think Ukraine has a good chance of avoiding those mistakes and issues? I think that it is also the responsibility of intellectuals in the society, uh, how they keep some uh, uh, important narratives and how they... Uh, reflect on them, how they interact with them, how they explain them, and how they explain their influence on the contemporary society. So uh, just to comment on what you told, I think that uh, Russians have a lot of work to be done uh, in this context. Uh, at the same time, I feel that Ukrainian intellectuals always uh, felt responsible for the memory here in this country. So I am not afraid that it won't happen. I just want that people to have uh, space for this uh, because unfortunately so many of them don't have the space and they mainly don't leave the country under any conditions. In the very beginning of the full war, I was asked um, by some colleagues to give recommendations on uh, people who could uh, come to universities, mainly in North America, and to have these courses about Ukrainian something. It was a period when everybody wanted to have a course uh, which will give you uh, an introduction to Ukrainian something or everything. But to avoid this, um, I need to say that uh, no one uh, from those people that I recommended accepted the invitation, unfortunately. Unfortunately, I think, because I would be happy if they speak uh, about Ukraine at these places, but uh, they all felt that they need to stay with their society, with their country. They uh, sometimes go abroad to uh, short trips to festivals or to perform at university, but uh, they don't want to leave the country, especially right now. Um, so it is also something uh, that uh, shows um, the the position of uh, many, many influential intellectuals here. So I, uh, I think that uh, they will do their job when time comes and they already write a lot about memory issues. Uh, so uh, they work on it. And the last question, uh, I think, is an interesting one, and that's about cooperation. Um, from doing these interviews, I see a lot of intergenerational cooperation, a lot of cooperation across genders, um, but also an extremely strong interaction between the, as you say, people who will travel abroad but are fundamentally located in, in Ukraine, uh, but also the Ukrainian diaspora. Um, and that includes the diaspora that goes all the way back to the to the Soviet period, uh, even those the families that left uh, during the Holodomor in the 1930s, there seems to be an extraordinary connection and one that is actually growing rather than diminishing between the diaspora and and you know the, the the mother country as it were. So in your view, how important is it these interactions between different you know demographics groups? The diaspora and uh, and uh, Ukrainian citizens. How does that really contribute to Ukrainian identity and resilience? I think it is very important because it is about different experiences to um, be discussed. Uh, for example, when we speak about the diaspora of uh, 20th century, those were people uh, who fled uh, Soviet Ukraine. Uh, and who understood that they're responsible to keep the memory. At the same time, they um, believed, but they were not sure that there will be independent Ukraine anymore. Uh, and I think that it is very um, painful uh, image uh, of uh, life. When you understand that probably you and your kids are the last who will speak uh, your native language, language, 
uh, in which uh, uh, literature that you love uh, was written and so on and your parents spoke uh so they have this very special uh, experience at the same time uh they uh, took many of the archives and saved them uh, many of the archives still are uh, in harvard uh, also in new york but also in canada some of the archives are in prague some are in germany uh, many were um, located back to ukraine but many still keep uh, in this uh, places where, uh, for example, first Ukrainian studies were launched because there were people who played the roles of the huge institutions. They understood that, um, for example, there is a famous literary scholar, George Lutsky, uh, who was the first person uh, to write a PhD about the uh, Stalin's uh, politics against uh, literary figures in Soviet Ukraine uh, or about the executed Renaissance generation. And he understood that if he um, didn't do this in English and if he wasn't able to present it at Columbia University where this work was done, uh, nobody will know in this circles about the executed Renaissance. Of course, it also doesn't mean that um, uh, there rose a huge circle of people who understood the, for example, essence of Stalin's politics. Uh, but some understood. And right now we have this work from the 50s, uh, which is an um, important point of our intellectual history, but also it is just very, um, very important uh, deed of a very special individual. And there are many such cases where people just understood that they're responsible for this. And I think that it is also very inspirational for many people in Ukraine, but also in contemporary diaspora, because they feel that if their ancestors did such things, they also need to uh, invest in uh, Ukraine as an idea to find this very personal connection and to build this connection stronger. That's absolutely fascinating. And there are so many themes here, you know, I'd like to explore in more detail. We are unfortunately out of time. Um, I'm so grateful to you for spending the time to, to dig into some of these issues. And I recommend people check out the publication. So even though it's in Ukrainian, Google Translate does a pretty good job of uh, uh you know you can get the sense of the articles uh and of course you do have some podcasts in english as well so we'll pop a link in here but uh bogdana thank you so much thank you so much for your time and for the work of you and your colleagues uh thank you so much for inviting me slava ukraine